And with us this morning, Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist from IMU. Good morning, Dr. Philip. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. It looks like the health ministry is all behind the mental health insurance. They think it's a good idea, but at the end of the day, they say it's Bank Nagara's domain. Now, as a psychiatrist, what are your thoughts, uh, Dr. Phil, on mental health insurance being made available to Malaysians? Oh, I can't wait for the date for that to happen. We've been talking about this for years. I remember when I was the secretary of the Malaysian Psychiatric Association, and it was way back in 2001, 2002, we were talking mm-hmm. about getting people insured for their mental health problems. I still see patients who, you know, have a mental health issue, can't tell their bosses, can't get, you know, any money back for the treatment, but get better within a few weeks. Right. And, you know, they've spent huge amount of monies because they can't claim that back. But if they had something like GERD or, you know, mm-hmm. some other medical problem, it's all claimable through insurance. So I think we're doing a great injustice by not actually covering people for one of the most common conditions in the world. Yeah. In fact, we know that depression is even more disabling than heart disease. And if they don't get the treatment that they require, it actually can lead to many, many other more complications. Right. Now, Dr. Philip, should the health ministry champion this initiative instead of pushing it to Bank Nagara solely? Well, I think all stakeholders should be involved. I mean, insurance companies usually will only listen to Bank Nagara. They're not going to listen to the Ministry of Health. So that you know, is, Yeah, that's true, isn't <laughs> <yeah>. it? <laughs> so it has to be a regulation that Bank Nagara puts. And, you know, like they put a regulation about 30% stakeholding in insurance companies. I think mm-hmm. they need to put something about, you know, covering for mental health among insurance companies as well. But, yeah, I think other stakeholders need to be involved. Uh, not just the Ministry of Health, but also NGOs and the private practitioners. And, you know, their voices need to be heard as well. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to take a look at the stresses you have at work and whether personalizing your workspace can improve your mental health. That's next after Lenka here on Light. On Mind Matters, with me is Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist from IMU. And I don't know if you knew this, but South Koreans work some of the longest office hours in the world. And uh, they've come up with things to kind of brighten up their own day. Things like a social media movement called Dexterior. (laughs) I don't know if it's something you've heard of, but basically it's personalizing your workspace or your desk to make it feel like home. Because they're spending many, many hours. In fact, some people work up to 68 hours hours a week. I mean, this is, uh, that's a lot of hours to be spending in one place, isn't it? It is. It's a a huge number of hours. Yeah. Right. And according to uh, those who are into this movement, uh, it improves their happiness and their mental health. Uh, How does this work? Well, I think this movement is, you know, trying to make the workplace as comfortable as your home. I think from the observation that was published it's more among women than in men (laughs) (laughs) well i you know i can understand that i think it's important for you you know to feel comfortable in a place Mm -hmm. because you spend so much time there it's almost like your second home and you know it's like your favorite couch at home the side table with the accessories that it has just thinking about it sometimes sets a soothing feeling so when you're in a busy you know hustle bustle of work and you can go to a relaxing space that you've created for yourself, I think it has its benefits for your mental health. Mm. And, uh, you know, I I don't think there's any harm in actually just 
doing up your right. little space. What about your office? Did you uh, <laughs> did you do up your own office? <laughs> you to know, make I, it I did. Yeah, I, I had a cubicle and I had all my certificates on my side. I had mm-hmm. photographs of, you know, different events that happened in my life. But then I got changed space. Oh. And, you know, <laughs> when you get changed space, you're wondering, am I going to change again? You know, if I put things up again. Right. And then, you know, so becomes a bit of a challenge. It sometimes. does. And then uh, there's the flip side of that. Uh, you know, you have already um, uh, personalized your workspace. Is it saying that it's uh, it's then okay to stay at work longer than we should? No, I think we need to have that uh, work-life balance set into our minds. I think in Korea, you know, they, they've encouraged people to spend less time. But I don't know, it seems like they're more, you know, Uh, ambitious than most of the other parts Mm -hmm. of the world. But I think, you know, you still need to look at a work-life balance. And that means exercise and family time and, you know, recreation and other activities. And also, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, which you can't do even if you decorate your workplace in that (laughs) workplace. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's why I don't bring any of my personal (laughs) items to work because I want to get out of here when I I do. Well, coming up, uh, air pollution and uh, depression. Is there a link? We'll find out with Dr. Philip next here on Light. Is a light breakfast with Shaz, and this is a really interesting um, study that they've done. Um, being exposed to air pollution could raise the risk of developing mental illnesses such as bipolar disorder and major depression. This is um, explained by the author's uh, paper published in the journal PLOS Biology. These factors, of course, include genetics, neurochemistry, and also the environment. Dr. Philip, Mm. Air pollution, you know, generally causes respiratory issues, but according to these researchers, it can now lead to depression. Can you explain how this works? Well, I mean, the researchers here actually suggest that it's exposure during the period of brain development because our brain actually develops from, you know, the age that we're born right until the age of 18 when it's fully developed. And I think they're looking at the first 10 years of life and believe that it can play a role in, you know, increasing the risk of bipolar disease and depression. So they actually looked at two parts of the world, the US and and Denmark, and then they looked at, you know, two variables, the air quality measurement of the two different areas, and then also the health insurance database between certain periods of years. And, you know, the Danish arm actually seemed to have more records and, and seemed to suggest that the developing brain during the first 10 years is a bit more prone to the effects of pollution. But, you know, there's a little bit of uh, caution here because this study is actually observational. Mm-hmm. And there may be a link, but it does not prove cause. Right. You know, there are many other variables and factors that can be involved in this All whole right. thing. Well, how can we know if it's the air quality that's affecting our mental health and not other factors? Are there any telltale signs to look out for? Well, I think in my own practice, uh, you know, we have the haze every now and then mm-hmm. in Malaysia. I have not seen an increase in mental health issues among those who have been already diagnosed. They don't have more relapses or right. you know, re- reoccurrences. And I don't think it, among my colleagues and I, we've seen an increase in number of new cases as well, mental health problems. So I think all of this is really very preliminary. But, you know, there's a very close link between sun exposure, sunlight exposure mm-hmm. and our moods. That's right. And, you know, so sometimes when there's a deep haze and you get very little sun exposure, it can change our moods to some level. Mm. And I think that may play a role if it's continuous and for years 
you know, on our moods as well. All right. Well, let's take a look at this next uh, study. Want to live longer? Be an optimist. <laughs> we'll see how this works with Dr. Philip George next here on Light. On HealthWise, with me is Dr. Philip George, and a new study published recently has found that men and women with the highest levels of optimism had an 11 to 15% longer lifespan on average than those who practice little positive thinking. Well, that's good news and a good reason to be optimistic. Um, How does this equate to longer life? Uh, Is there any truth to this study? Well, actually, if we go back, there have been studies actually looking at this from way beyond. And in fact, a study in 2008 showed that optimists or people of positive thinkers were less likely than pessimists to develop coronary heart disease. Um, This was actually a huge study looking at about 9,700 individuals. So this present study that we're talking about uh, from the Boston School of Medicine actually analyzed data from two large studies and they, you know, focused on women and men and found that optimistic women had lifespans of almost 15% longer. Mm-hmm. And for men who were optimistic, their lifespan was about 11% longer. So, yeah, so I think what they suggest is that maybe people who are optimistic and positive lead healthier lifestyles. There are fewer depressive symptoms. Yeah, less stress maybe. They can manage yeah, it better, They can I manage guess. it better, yeah. And they have more social ties because, you know, you attract more people. And so I think all of this is leading to, you know, the positive health outcomes for people who are right. optimistic. But what about for those who are cynical or pessimistic by nature? How can they change their, I guess, their, their whole outlook? Outlook, yeah. And behavior. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all, <coughs> that, that's exactly what Aaron Beck had actually proposed. You know, he said, Suggested that people can be divided into two, two types: the you know positive thinkers and the negative thinkers. Your glass half full or half empty. Mm-hmm. And so he actually introduced cognitive therapy, which is focusing on changing perceptions related to ourselves, to our future, to our environment. So those who are negative thinkers can actually think about changing how they actually perceive things and make themselves feel a little bit more positive. There are things like you know online. Uh, therapies that actually help with this, things like moodgym.com.au and then eCouch, which actually challenge your thoughts, help you to challenge your thoughts, or even seeking therapy. I think all of this actually helps us to, you know, maybe change how we perceive things and give us better mental health as well. All right. Well, next we're going to look at coming out about your mental health issues or statuses on social media um, and how it could actually help or hinder. That's next here on Light. On Mind Matters this morning, Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist from IMU. And it looks like celebrities and public figures like Dwayne Johnson, uh, Ariana Grande, a lot of other people have used social media as a platform to share stories about their mental health issues and to encourage others. This can be a good thing, uh, but most of us choose to stay mum about our problems and only show happy things that happen on social media. Should we be sharing everything for better mental health, even our problems? problems. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think typically social media can make people with mental health issues actually feel worse because most of what is posted is fun things and, you know, that the people engage in and it's mostly about, you know, making themselves feel FOMO, you know, fear yeah. of missing out <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, making comparisons and then making their mental health issues a bit worse. 
But, you know, when, when we start to open up, we need to know who we're opening up to, who's the audience that we have. Because sometimes social media can exacerbate problems if it's not the right kind of community mm-hmm. and or if the community responds in a toxic way. You know, I think we had that incident in Sarawak where the girl, yeah. you know, wanted to know what her social media group thought about, you know, her ending her life. And it was really sad to see the community not support her. Mm. And I think, so we need to know who we're actually talking to. This study actually is of a PhD candidate who actually did put up uh, issues about her own mental health and suddenly found that so many others had similar sort of experiences and they were all in the same boat. They were maybe doing their PhD or masters mm-hmm. and it was a lonely place. And so, you know, sometimes people with a mental health problem need peer support. Others who experience it, others who can help them think that you can recover. And, you know, in Malaysia, we don't have as many group supports. Yeah. And sometimes online can be helpful if it's yeah. the right community. All right.